Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Bridget Burns, who's the Executive Director of the University Innovation Alliance. Uh, she's been doing really fascinating work in that space for a little while. I've been tracking her. Big fan. Very happy to have her on the show. So, Bridget, welcome to Trending in Education. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Absolutely. And you're uh, a very experienced conversationalist, a raconteur, a keynote speaker. I've listened to your podcast. I've seen your videos. So if folks like what you're hearing from Bridget, there's plenty of ways uh, to find her. And it's the UIA, T-H-E-U-I-A.org is, yep. is the website. If you want to browse that even as we're talking or learn more. But to begin, Bridget, we always love to ask our guests uh, to, to tell us their origin story. What got you to this point in your professional life? And for an audience who's trying to get a read on where the future of learning is headed, how does your origin story lead into that conversation? I am really fortunate to do work that directly affects people who have my background. I got bit by the education bug very early on and just nothing else has been as interesting or as exciting in terms of making an impact. My background is that I grew up in a low-income family in rural Montana my uh, father's been in a wheelchair since I was two years old. My mom stayed home and took care of him. So near 100% unemployment mm. in my family. And I tell the story about how I was really not given any guidance about college. College was something that while I observed others going, there wasn't really any intentional or thoughtful talk about it. Mm. The only conversations were when my dad would literally joke about how if I really wanted to go, I should do what my brother did and win a state championship in, in wrestling. And so that was it. And the message I took from that, just like other low income or first generation students, when you're trying to like sift through and find the, the guidance to follow mm. is that I followed that advice as though it was saying, if I'm really good at something, if I'm exceptional at something, then I'll get to go to college. And mm. so I doubled down and focused on winning a state championship, mm. not in wrestling, thankfully. And then I totally neglected my studies. And so oh, just real quick, what's, what was the state championship in debate? I ended up finally winning a state championship in debate. Nobody's interested in a mediocre student who can argue about it compared to a Big Ten wrestler. So I barely eked out of high school with a 2.3 GPA. Mm -hmm. I didn't have nearly the options that I thought I would. And I didn't really have the guidance. So I stumbled to a community college in rural Idaho. Actually, not really rural. So Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And that was as far as I could get away <laughs> from Montana. And as 18-year-olds do, like you just, you know, the, we don't, I, I love how now when I give advice, by the way, to young people, that my advice is so strategic and yeah. you got to make a decision this way or that. And the mm. truth is I just bumbled my way. Yep. And I'm so lucky that it worked out. People have been incredibly kind and generous to me. And that's really what's happened in my life. Mm. So I get to community college. Turns out they don't have a debate program. And so I have to get involved in something. I'm trying to find a use for, for my skills. Mm -hmm. So that got me involved in student government, which was really very eye-opening because through that, I became aware of the challenges other low-income students experienced. I understood more about the poverty cycle, mm. started first trip to D first airplane ride to DC to lobby. So it was some of those early formative experiences that education gave me that really led me on my path. It was mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff outside the classroom. And I then ended up at Oregon State University and a year and a half after I got there, I was elected student body president. Mm. And a year and a half after that, I was appointed by the governor 
of Oregon to the State Board of Higher Education. That's a bit more of my origin, like younger story. But if you think about it, that's so formative. Like as someone with my background, Mm. a non-traditional student who barely transferred, showing up at a school, didn't know anyone and managing to at 22 years old, being on the hiring committee for the next college president. Yeah. And then having to deal with hiring and firing of college presidents and figuring that out. So that was just a really um, powerful experience. And the broad picture of that is I really wanted to try and help education uphold the promise and the impact that I thought it should have. And it had for me. Yeah. And I just want other kids in poverty to have the same opportunity to have the light bulb awakening moment that I had. And so that's kind of how I got bit at a younger age. And then I stayed in education. I, you know, got my master's in public policy, worked after I left the university system. I I served on several other state boards around college access success and ultimately ended up becoming the chief of staff years later for the university system. Mm -hmm. And then that gets me to, at some point, I'm finally ready for a you know, transition and I become an ACE fellow and I get to follow Michael Crow around. There'd been all this talk about innovation and yeah. innovative leaders. And it felt very much like it's hard to know, right. is it really different? Mm-hmm. It, are there leaders who are fundamentally different is how they yeah. see the world different and what could I learn from him? And I just also wanted to understand the difference between really strong leadership and right. otherwise, because I'd seen but there's a wide spectrum. And sure. so that has been formative. And then during my ACE fellowship is when this opportunity, the, the fact that President Crow was looking for uh, a way to, to team up with other universities who might want to also be ambitious about yeah. really delivering on the promise nationally. And that's where the alliance came from. Yeah. That's uh, amazing stuff. And Michael Crow at ASU, if you don't know, you should know, because he's, he's even transcending education, I think, in terms of broad awareness. Uh, but certainly, if you're interested in education, he's someone to track. But can you give a little background around what Michael's doing as best he can? Yeah, President Crow is widely seen as one of the most innovative presidents in the US, but also just generally one of the most innovative individuals out there. He really thinks about scale and about broadening participation, but really stepping up and using technology in a creative way, thinking about the modalities of education, trying to think ahead. One of the things that's really useful to know about Mike is part of his original interest was in science and technology policy. So science policy, like that is his like way back, that's his jam. So he, Mm. and he cares about the future and how we meet the needs of the future. He loves to watch science fiction movies. So think about the kind of person that is really thinking about those things and that he happens to lead the largest university in the country. Mm. And when he first got to ASU, it was not anything like what it is now. And he's fundamentally changed it. He deeply cares about students. He deeply cares about education and trying to help it, it really achieve its full potential in terms of impact. He's someone who I think a lot of people come in and they're like, is he possibly the real deal? Or this right. is weird. Is, is How hype? do you work? Yeah. 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 And I, I was in that space where I was trying to figure out, is this dude for real? And he was, he yeah. is. The thing about Michael Crow is that he is the hardest working person I've ever met. I feel so lazy when I'm around him because you're just like, man, he's been up since 4.30 in the morning, yeah. going f- every 15 minutes until 10 PM at night. Yeah. I used to know that I could always get him on email. And this pre-COVID, I, yeah. I always knew I could get him on email between um, 11 PM and one in the morning. That was always my sweet spot when it would almost be like you could direct message. So he's incredibly hardworking and he really does ask really creative questions about the future. And he is pretty obsessed with 
velocity and scale and, and, and reimagining things. So yeah. the end result is I figured out he was for real. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and along the way, I learned a lot about innovation. I learned a lot about change. I learned a lot about power and yeah. politics and all the things that I have to watch presidents dance with. He's just, he's a prolific leader yeah. and it transcends education and workforce yeah. and everything. Yeah. Interesting yeah. stuff. And he's written several books. Yeah, exactly. And then the UIA came out of the success of Arizona State's model and the related success of other similar models. How did that actually come into being? The UIA is a group of 11 college presidents and chancellors united around a shared sense of urgency that we were simply not producing enough college graduates Mm -hmm. to meet the demands. If you looked at where we were in terms of economic competitiveness, especially in 2013, 2014, Mm -hmm. and that we were doing a really terrible job when it comes to low-income, first-gen, and students of color. Yeah, And that going it alone, as is the traditional model of higher ed, to try and, you know, figure it out on your own, give it the old college try, put your shoulder into it. It's just a waste of time, energy, and money. Mm -hmm. And so these institutions were about really trying to figure out how could we work together to innovate, to scale up, to step up, how well we serve students, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But in terms of where it came from, it was serendipity to some degree, but it really was, there was this report called the Next Generation Universities Report that was, Lumina funded it, and it was written by New America and a collection of other folks. And it was essentially like, what are the new models? What is the next generation of a university that really is serving a lot of people that believes you can be big and good Yeah, and really uses technology strategically and is truly innovative in terms of student outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it elevated, I think, six institutions. And it was the first time that those campuses became on each other's radar. Mm-hmm. So for ASU, for Michael Crow, it was his first time really understanding that Georgia State, what they were doing was really interesting, yeah. or University of Central Florida, or UC Riverside. And so those four campus leaders uh, were invited to a meeting about something totally different. And they identified a group of other leaders, presidents to come into a room to just chit chat about this. Hey, this is, mm. looks like we're all doing something interesting. Sounds like we're not doing the same thing. Yeah. What if we could try and scale it? And that mm-hmm. was really as simple as it was. And President Crow, I think, was the one who organized that meeting yep. with the help of Hillary Pennington, who's now at the Ford Foundation. Mm. And I showed up, I think, a month later or so mm-hmm. down in Arizona, and I was free labor <laughs> to try and, <laughs> as an ACE fellow, I had a completely open plate. And yeah. I happened to have a weird expertise, which was shuttle diplomacy between university presidents because yeah. I've been a chief of staff. That was, that's how it originally started. Yeah. And it's, and it's been quite a period of time for this collective to be around beginning right around the time the MOOCs were the term of art and the vision around revolutionizing online education. I think the year of the MOOC was 2012. Mm-hmm. This is relatively soon after that. Hopefully, as I understand it, some element of this is thinking about the promise of online education and how some of this stuff could really be a scaling agent for the, the make, opening up access to higher education. And I imagine you've seen a lifetime's worth of experience if you look at, say, the last seven or eight years. Any initial thoughts on that span of time? Can you maybe describe what it's been like from inception to now? Yeah. When we first started, student success was not really a a word that was being used. 
that was not the focus. The focus was graduation rates. We were still pretty obsessed with rankings. Not that we've become immune to that, but mm. I think we had a fairly old school way of looking at institutional performance. I think that's been a big evolution is the significant focus on student success. I'd like to think that we've played a role in that. But I also think that the idea that institutions as standalone figures, that's where we should pay our attention. I think that's evolved. I think there's been a lot more collective impact focus. When we first rolled out, there was, it was just like, meh, okay, whatever. A group of people saying they're going to do something. Yeah. I, I, that was a feeling I got from folks. And I think part of that is that higher ed has a, a tradition or a history of we announce a lot of things. Yeah. We don't always follow through on them mm -hmm. and we rarely shut things down, that kind of, that, that narrative. And there was little fanfare at the time. And we have over time really created a bit more of a drumbeat about when universities collaborate, that students win and that student success should be our focus, that it is about the design of the institution. We actually have to do fundamental transformation of how an institution works and a lot about broadening participation that we've been focused on the wrong things for mm -hmm. way too long and it's difficult to make change and the only way you make change that really lasts is really working together just because otherwise we see the turnover happen so quickly that institutions progress recedes quickly over time mm -hmm. so those are just some internal observations but you asked about online and it's interesting that has up until the last year that was not a place that i focused and it was mm. for a very specific reason this work is about shared challenges and goals that we can only achieve together mm. i think those are really important framing principles for a collaborative you shouldn't just throw collaboration at something it should be we have a shared mutual problem or we have something that we can only accomplish if we work together. And for me, competition is a threat to trust. And one place where these campuses, because they're all around the country, the one place they did theoretically compete was online. Like you could drive into Orlando and see an ASU billboard. And right. so I didn't want people mm. to hide the ball. I didn't want people to feel mm. like trade secrets would, would need to be protected or anything. Mm. And so I left it to some degree as a place where, yes, we talked about it briefly, but it really wasn't the focus. Instead, we were focusing on the adaptive learning backend, uh -huh. the analytics. How are you using with your retention efforts? Mm. What are the specific interventions that you use to mm -hmm. improve a student's likelihood of, of staying in right. and completing? So yeah. maybe more technology and not online to a certain extent, although not just technology, but the, the digital aspect of the transformation was happening. Because when I look back on the last 10 years, I do think about the, the things that have been unlocked through technology development that has happened in the last 10 years can be unlocked online. And it typically requires innovators who are activated against something and able to, to operate at scale. Also, when you talk about scaling, when you say scale, I immediately gravitate to at least digital. First, the way that we think about scale, while yes, we're talking about more, my narrow focus is often on a different type of scale, which is if an idea has met a threshold of evidence and we know it works in one location, mm -hmm. can we take it and port it to another ecosystem with different values, a different, you know, 
a different model of how yeah. they do things, whether it's centralized advising, sure. decentralized advising, et cetera. Yeah. In that different culture, mm -hmm. how do you stand it up? What lessons can you extract from that first experience? Mm -hmm. And we find that the the riffing and the evolution, the adaptation, that is actually the most valuable stuff. Like mm -hmm. how did Iowa State change proactive advising because mm -hmm. they have a decentralized advising model? Mm -hmm. That stuff is so much richer than me telling you just about the Georgia State mm. example. So that kind of scale is what we focus on is, Got it. does it work? Can, is everyone else want to actually stand this up on their campus? And then how can, as part of a, a, a small group of trusted um, colleagues, how can we set ourselves up that we're sharing in real time so that we move faster, right. that we can move more effectively, et cetera. Sure. Yeah, I was maybe gravitating a little more towards uh, technology, but I do hear what you're saying here. One of the trends that, that we're talking about in 2021 is the idea of virtuous feedback and the idea that you can create these feedback mechanisms among the different schools so that when you try something that worked in one place, when you try it somewhere else, it's not going to be delivered in exactly the same way, but ultimately the information sharing will make everybody better. So I definitely understand that orientation. I think my question was more about how technology relates to okay. the innovation, because when you were talking about scale and feel free to educate me, maybe our listeners will, will be along for the ride, but, but I immediately, when I think scale, I think digital and I think online learning. And that's why I thought it was maybe surprising to me that your focus wasn't necessarily so much there. So I'd love to hear yeah. more about that and then perhaps how that changed in light of everything suddenly having to move online, which is probably your most recent chapter. Yeah. For us, it, it's not online for online sake. I think often people think online education because we're thinking about the future and because this is just going to be more efficient, et cetera. But we think online for, if you're really thinking about reimagining higher education around the needs of the learner then the modality of delivery is one of the variables. And mm -hmm. you have to have flexibility around that in terms of what type of student are you talking about serving, thinking about their holistic needs and making mm -hmm. sure that they have as much flexibility in terms of how they consume knowledge so that the true transfer of ideas happens. Yep. And so I think that a blended model is likely to be the outcome for everyone. And right. we've discovered that there were a lot of things that were happening in person that that was a waste of energy and it was a waste of time. And, and we don't actually need you to physically port to a location, but we've also become very clear about some stuff that should never be online. And I think that the lack of community and connection, and it turns out a lot of the stuff that people treated as somewhat peripheral is the town square, or there's this study space that students are just hanging out in. Is that really what we, yeah, actually yeah. that the, the interactions that happen, those serendipitous interactions, it turns out there was extremely high value to that. And that a lot of the stuff we thought of as old school that have to do with the architecture of the campus, there's actual real thoughtful and important value that mm -hmm. I just don't think we appreciated. Yeah. But again, for us, in terms of technology, we're thinking about the, the what data do you need to be focused on? How do your systems need to be changed to make sure that the right people who are going to be intervening have access to the data in real time? Yeah. How do we make sure that the chat bot, if you're going to communicate in, a, in this e ecosystem, we know that surveys fatigue is like a massive problem. And so right. it's not just throw a chatbot at it. It's right. how do you set, there are versions of chatbots. There are different locations for chatbots. You can choose different parts of your institution to have control. Yeah. What are the, there's a lot of strategy around time of day, use of gifts. How many questions in a row can you ask before a student yeah. disengages? When is it strategic to use that? So all of that stuff, 
the analytics stuff, yeah. the how you support your advisors, how you support um, financial aid intervening quickly. How do you make sure your faculty have the insights to be aware if you have an issue with a student in your classroom in real time? Mm-hmm. And so all of those pieces matter. And whether I'm looking at a screen or I'm in person right. matters. Mm-hmm. So I just think of them, they're all different variables and they all have to change if you're really obsessed with empathy, if you're really obsessed with design and that the outcome is the transfer of ideas, not just the coverage of ideas, yeah. so that a person ends up with a meaningful credential that will support their ability to navigate multiple careers. Yeah. Um, I think obsession with that mm-hmm. is where I'm at instead of should it be online or not? It's like a sub question. I, I took online classes when I was in school and obviously now everyone <laughs> does. And I think that there is a lot of conversation now about how to support students in spaces around the virtual student supports. I think, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Those yeah. are the kinds of conversations people need to be having because there isn't a gold standard yeah. for it. It seems online right now. The blending, I think, is where a lot of us are landing. I like to talk about small batch varietal blends of, of online education, but, but it does seem like the Alliance has many of the examples of folks who are doing something extremely innovative. Because when you're talking about the, the chatbots, I immediately think of Georgia State and the work that they've been doing. Can you name check a few of those too, just in, in case folks want to do a little more research? Because I think you're, you're a real resource for folks. They should check your stuff out, check the Alliance's stuff out. But also off the, the top of your head, if folks want to learn more about some new trends, some new emerging capabilities. And I was thinking Georgia State, when you were talking about it as the example, when I think chatbots, I think, I think about what Georgia State's been doing. But are there some of those examples that you could mm-hmm. share? Yeah, so actually the way the Alliance works is that every year we pick a project or focus area that we're gonna work on together. And again, it usually focuses on shared problem Mm -hmm. or shared solution that we all need. Georgia State has definitely been a mentor in in many of those project areas, but so have our other campuses. So when you're thinking about chatbots, Arizona State actually took Mm -hmm. the idea of chatbots from Georgia State a few years ago and really the scale and the the size of the use of chatbots is pretty Mm. massive there. They use them both for their online students and for their Mm in-person and at various different junctures of uh, different departments of the institution. But that was an Alliance-wide project last year. And so all of our campuses are at different stages of use of chatbots, implementation of chatbots. One of the the problems that always happens when you think about dissemination of ideas is there's always the example institution that did it first. Yep. And that's fantastic. And you can learn a lot by watching them. But what you learn more from most of the time is watching someone else at a different institution struggle to replicate, figuring out, they have to sift through and see, okay, what are the questions? What are the things that are the unknowns? And that's what I try and be as obsessed as possible about is trying to distill those insights so that the first time we scale Mm -hmm. to Oregon State, great. I learned a lot from that. But now I'm watching how Ohio State is mm-hmm. launching their chatbot. And what did I learn that makes it even faster? And what what would I say that I can say is more clear now than mm-hmm. that first round? Yeah. So we've done this now 10 times. And, yeah. and it's sometimes at the same time and sometimes it's not. And I find that it's really useful to have a colleague that you can trust and ask the stupid question. You don't know if it's the right question. It's always the right question, yeah. but who is maybe a few steps ahead of you or steps behind you on mm-hmm. the adoption curve. Mm-hmm. So that's really what we do is we create a small cluster approach to 
we're all moving towards the same direction, but we're all going to have different interpretations of it. And it's really up to me and my team to make sure that we're having the kinds of thoughtful conversations where you're just getting your mind blown on a regular basis because you're like, Oh, I hadn't even, I didn't even think about like how to use this with alumni. I Mm. wow. You're applying this with career services because that's Mm. what's happening. Like our campuses are doing it all over and you're, you're getting all of this insight along the way. Chatbots. That's one example, but we've done, Completion grants, which was, again, an idea that originated at Georgia State, all of our campuses have used them. More than 4,000 grants have been issued from our campuses to our students. And so we actually have a playbook that we'll be rolling out in the next month to make it Mm. super easy for other campuses to replicate that. And that's, again, the distillation of across 11, not always at the same time not always the same interpretation. What can we say is true? Yeah, We've done predictive analytics. We've done transformation of college to career. So mm, mm. what's the future of career services need to look like? Yeah, We did proactive advising and we've also done a doctoral fellows program, but we're this year doing a black student success initiative where mm-hmm. we're trying to actually figure out if you want to go further, if you don't want to just do what we see a lot of campuses do, which is like we're going to create a task force. They're going to write a paper or like there's all this low hanging fruit and that's not enough. We actually have to engage in what does it structurally look like if you're really going to be intentional about setting up black students to be successful on your campus and what changes need to happen system-wide? Where do you need individual solutions? How can we actually all lean in together and share what we're doing in real time to help each other be more committed and more ambitious to upholding our our promise of really transforming higher ed around the needs of black students? That was very helpful. And then it also made me think a bit about I guess the mission is both tied to knowledge sharing and advancing the model of the 11 uh, core institutions, but then you're also ideally spreading that more broadly across higher education. Is that also part of the, the mission? Yeah. So part of the reason why you can see me and hear me all the time is we really focused on, you know, innovation, scale, and diffusion are like the core pieces underneath our strategy, which is we try and innovate together to solve problems that like everyone, everyone has, and we don't have a solution to Yeah. or advanced research that hasn't been done, you know, thus far, but really needs to happen. So we did a 10,000 student RCT Mm. on proactive advising because there had been no study to really actually figure out what are the specific intervention steps that that truly that work in that space. Yeah. Then scale, obviously I've talked a bit about the scale projects and what we learned from that, but then broadly diffusion, like how do mm. we make sure that every campus can have this information? Yeah. So we're about to roll out a playbook on the college to career piece. We're rolling out a playbook on completion grants. We do live streaming all the time. We share pretty regularly we have a podcast mm. and we're constantly trying to make sure that it's easy, accessible and effective for other people, other institutions to to be able to improve outcomes, regardless of if they have resources or if they're in the alliance. The goal of the alliance is not just about us. We're trying to be a model of behavior. We want all of higher education to step up, to close our equity gaps, Mm -hmm. to do a much better job serving students from the backgrounds that we've traditionally not done a very good job with. And we change the behavior of higher education over time. So we're trying to model that behavior. Other people can do this. You can form an alliance or you could join our innovation network, or, yeah. which, which is for, if you wanna be a part of this ecosystem, or if you're just an individual who wants to know what the ideas are, we wanna create that content for you yeah. that will make it easier for you to be able to serve the students that we need to serve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic stuff. And we haven't even talked much about the future. That's the other aspect of the conversation that I'd love to get 
some perspective from you on it. If you are looking ahead, it's been such a crazy year and now it looks like the year 2020 doesn't feel like it's over or whatever 2021 is. It doesn't feel majorly different from 2020, at least so far. As you look ahead, there's some hope around the vaccine. There's a new administration coming in. There's the spring semester on the horizon. And then there's the rest of this decade. What do you see on the horizon? Anything capturing your interest or imagination? Any plans for for the Alliance? I would just say in terms of stuff coming from us, we'll be announcing shortly that we've exceeded many of our initial public goals. And so our campuses have decided to double down. And Hmm. instead of just focusing on improving outcomes and expanding the number of college graduates and specifically low income, we're now moving towards every campus is committed to eliminating disparity overall. And so Mm -hmm. that's going to be a lot more intentional work around every kind of student population, where we're Mm -hmm. talking about rural, urban, adult learners, all of it. Whereas before we've been traditionally really focused on low income students and first gen. And we have been hounded to some degree since 2013, people have said, when are you going to admit more campuses? When are you going to bring more on? And we have gone for the last year and a half, almost two years, we have actually been figuring out how we came together was somewhat serendipitous. But now that we know what we know, and over 120 institutions have asked to join the Alliance, and we have had some success, the question is, how would you expand in a way that was truly finding the right institutions who are serious about this work? And so we had to develop a really complex formula. We analyzed every institution in the country, R1s and R2s, and we were committed to expanding the types of institutions. We've always been just research intensive, large publics over 25K. Mm -hmm. And we're now gonna be adding an HBCU and a regional public institution that we'll be announcing in the next month. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna be expanding up to potentially doubling the size of the Alliance. We'll never get bigger than 20 Mm -hmm. uh, because we think the intimacy matters. So that's one announcement is that like, we're actually open for business in terms of, we figured out the right criteria to help us identify the kinds of actors that we think are to take this seriously and commit and really add value. Yeah. That's a big part of what I'm focusing my time on. And also something called the University Innovation Network, where other institutions, individuals, or networks can be a part of an ecosystem Hmm. with the alliance. We we just wanted to create a space where ideas move more quickly. Mm -hmm. So it it can be about anything, but we would of course seed that with original content from the UIA. Yeah. In terms of what's inspiring me about the future, I think I'm really interested in figuring out how we set higher ed to really soak up the lessons from COVID that were good. What stuff should always stay virtual? How do we make sure that it doesn't make sense that we ever offer a class that is hundred percent in person again? Mm -hmm. What lessons have we learned from this flip to digital that we never want to unlearn and what do we need to get back to quickly? So that kind of stuff, folks are starting to, to think about that in terms of the future of education. I'm super interested in how we can serve a totally new population. Not obviously adult learners, we really need to double down on in a way that my institutions and, and, and institutions like mine, we have not at the level that we need to. Right. But now I think we have a new group of people we need to serve. And unfortunately, there are alumni, right? Like we need to figure out how we can help you understand what your skills are as the digital economy changes so quickly. Yeah. And we won't really know how much that change has, has happened until we get through this, yeah. but we gave credentials and certificates and we graduated a lot of people who were working happily 
and then they had the world flipped on them. And so the question is, what role can we play to help mm. them retool, reimagine? And I don't believe it's an MBA. Right. I think that the way that we think education needs to be consumed is too big and too slow. And we're going to have to start figuring out how to modularize and create bite-sized offerings that meet people where they are. And so I'm super interested in seeing which institutions are going to be serious about that, not just as a money grab. I see so many online EDDs rolling out and I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah. that is not what we need right now. What we right. actually need are let's meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. So I'm super interested in how over the next year and a half, we soak up these lessons and how we actually shift our work in the direction that I think we always should have. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing stuff. Lots, uh, lots to chew on. I also, I, I recall uh, you mentioning you were intrigued by TikTok as well. So uh, that. Format, oh yeah. Yeah. I love TikTok. I think, thank goodness for TikTok through COVID, right? I learned so much from it. That's what I, I find really interesting is how these people are coming up with really creative ways to distill a message and to educate people. The educational part of TikTok is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning about weird stuff. I had no idea I was going to learn about like today, tech valuations and how a company's value is set, wow. mortgages and yeah. different craft projects, like all these things I wouldn't, like, yeah. I didn't know I was interested in that. I just, I find that this is an interesting platform that I think shows us that you can distill complex messages in a way that is really valuable for the Mm -hmm. audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we're gonna deliver all of our lectures in TikTok form, but what could we possibly learn from this experience and from seeing how these creators are, are doing this that would enhance our ability to connect with students and make sure that the lessons truly resonate because, Mm -hmm. and I've still been looking for students creating TikToks around topics that would be to some degree like peer-to-peer mentoring advice. I wish I'd known when Mm -hmm. I first came to college, here's how to do the FAFSA, things like that. I don't want to see people like me (laughs) creating TikToks about that. I want to see how we can help support young people. I think empathy is really powerful. I think that folks sharing their experience and using that to help coach and guide others is really generous and thoughtful. And I just, I would love to see more of that Mm -hmm. and make sure that we are putting students as the ambassadors in the role as the guides that they are for others. And hopefully being able to increase the number of students who believe that they can and that they have the knowledge to be able to navigate college. There's so much of this language that is inside baseball. And I feel like, man, what a missed opportunity that we're not actually trying to strategically as a sector leverage this medium to meet the population that we're trying to serve. Yeah, that's fantastic. It does come full circle back to your origin story too, where you think about people in a similar position where you were when you were 18, where would you be seeking out that kind of insight? Would you trust, getting back to your trust point, would you trust something that was designed by someone who was older? Are you going to trust someone who's sort of using the formats and talking in a language that that you understand a lot better? How do you unlock that potential? Quite a lot to chew on. And that's just yeah. part of part of what we were chewing on. I would stay off of wrestling TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I was going to make a joke about Stevie Nicks, but I decided not to. I just let that go. But yeah, amazing conversation. Very much appreciated. Dr. Bridget Burns at the University Innovation Alliance. For those of you who are listening, thanks so much uh, for, for the time. Oh, you're welcome. And it's an honor to talk about this work. And I really appreciate the chance to connect with your audience. Awesome. And uh, for our listeners, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Mm-hmm.